0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Romans. Um, Last week, we studied chapters 4 and 5, and one of the major themes um, in chapter 4 was the the fact that um, St. Paul was speaking to the Jews who are in the Church of Rome, and he is trying to get them to understand that circumcision is not what brings righteousness. And using Abraham as an example because the Jews um, revered Abraham and they see him as their father. And so they consider that because Abraham received the covenant and the covenant with circumcision and that Abraham was circumcised, then that means that all of the people who are circumcised who are the Jews, the children of Abraham, are like the chosen people and that their righteousness comes from the fact that they have been chosen, that they are the children of Abraham and so on. And so um, because of that, When they look at people who are uncircumcised, like the Gentiles, they consider them to be less. And they they consider them to require circumcision in order for them to be accepted by God. Um, And so St. Paul spends um, a great deal of time arguing against this point and making it clear to them that, no, righteousness does not come through circumcision. And that Abraham actually was justified because of the faith that he had, not because of the circumcision that he practiced circumcision was a sign of his faith because he believed god and it was accounted for him as righteousness Uh, and and that is why even the gentiles who have faith and belief in god are counted as righteous before god not because of the circumcision but because of their faith and and so he mentions specifically how abraham was actually called while in a state of uncircumcision if, if circumcision was the only thing that allowed a person to be righteous before God, then why is it even that Abraham was called when he was still uncircumcised? Um, then in chapter 5, he spoke about how we are all the descendants of Adam, Jews and Gentiles al- alike, and we are all in need of salvation. Um, and and this was uh, uh, like uh, to argue again against the point of the Jews, which are saying that Like somehow they have this special status um, and diminishing the uh, grace that we received at the sacrifice of Christ. Again, believing that their righteousness comes through their status of being the children of Abraham. So St. Paul argues and he says, no, we are all in a state of sin. We all have fallen short of the glory of God, and we all need the, the the grace and the salvation that came through Jesus Christ, which is why Christ was incarnate and did all that he did for our sake. And so whether Jew or Gentile alike, we are all in need of salvation. So again, trying to bring down the Jews from their lofty position in order for them to have uh, an understanding of the Christian faith truly—it is not—it is not by status of circumcision or by practicing any kind of rituals, but it is through the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which whether Jew or Gentile can all have together. So um, in chapter 6, um, St. Paul, he speaks about the new life that comes through baptism and the freedom that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. This new life, again, is to address the Jewish belief um, that all that is necessary is to be the children of Abraham, and the sign of that is circumcision. Here he's speaking about being dead to sin and being alive to God, and also the idea of slavery, that we went from being slavery slaves to sin, to being slaves uh, to God. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live in it any longer? So he spent all of this time speaking about the grace of God and how those who follow the law and fall short of it, that salvation is not through the law and so on. But then he goes on to say what, but it is not the case that we can just ignore any kind of commandment that god gave and continue to live in sin because we believe that the grace of god covers us we can't say we can't use this as an excuse for sin okay and so he says how shall we who died to sin live any longer okay we who have been chosen by god and those of us who have accepted to be the disciples of christ have to live in a state of being dead to sin okay being dead to sin Because we, are old man, the old nature that we had at our birth has died in baptism and we have been reborn again. And so for that reason, all of the nature that we had, the corrupted nature, is, is dying in us. And what is being resurrected is a redeemed and transformed nature that now desires to live apart from the sins of the flesh and the lusts of the flesh, but desiring only to live in God. So just because we have received the grace of God does not mean that we live a life in sin and say, well, but I have salvation and God has saved me. No, it is one of the signs of the salvation that is working in us is that we are desiring to live purely, we are desiring to walk in God, we are desiring to to cut out sin and be dead to sin more and more. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Okay? So when we speak about the grace of God, right, we speak about the grace of God, we speak about the work of the Holy Spirit, what form does the grace of God take? Like how do we identify the grace of God and where do we see the grace of God work? In in, In something, something, a specific thing we see in the church the sacraments. Right? We see the grace of God working in the sacraments. Okay? So, are you familiar with the concept of the believers' baptism? So, the believers' baptism is something that many in the Protestant tradition believe in, and essentially it's saying that that we become believers and we are like baptized by the Holy Spirit when we acknowledge our faith in Christ and we accept Christ, and then it is like in that moment that we receive the Holy Spirit and and it is like a baptism, a baptism of faith. The believer's baptism is what they call it, but there is no physical um, manifestation of that. Like it is, it is, it is uh, something that I say, that I that I do, and 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 you know, what what like how do I know even that it's happened? Like how do I know even that that I actually have received the Holy Spirit or not? Right? In in all of the sacraments of the church, there is a spiritual component and there's a physical component. And this physical component is to confirm the reality of the spiritual component. So we as human beings, we perceive everything in our senses, right? Is it possible that God could have just baptized us just completely in the spirit with there ever ever being water and and any of that? Sure, he can do that. He can do anything. But the the, the baptism, the the, the sacraments are made in such a way that our whole self, The the body and the spirit and the mind and everything is is, um, participating in this act and that when we remember the day that we were baptized, we can remember the event. There is an event. There is me going into the water. There is me coming out of it. We can take pictures. We can remember that day, okay, as opposed to Yeah, I just, it it was in my mind. Like I said, yes, I believe, and that's all, right? There is an action. There is something clear, and there's something that other people can look at as well and say, yes, this person is a believer. This person is baptized, okay? So when we are baptized and in other sacraments, this is one of the forms that the grace of God works When when we speak about the grace of God, right? The grace of God works in the sacraments. Meaning before the sacrament of baptism was available for us, we did not have the access to the grace of God for salvation. Baptism became effective and available to us in the New Testament after the resurrection of Christ. And as a sacrament, there is a physical component to it that we can know that we've done it. we, We participate in it. We ascend to it. We choose to do it. And in doing so, we experience the grace of God for the purpose of renewal, transformation, and salvation. So, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized what? Into his death, right? And the idea of salvation is very much tied up with death, right? Salvation and death are, are very closely linked together in many ways. So, actually, the act of salvation that Christ did for us involved his death. In order for us to have salvation, we have to be baptized into his death. In order for us to live renewed and sanctified and transformed and as believers in the church in the world, we have to what be dead to sin. Again, there is a death. Even the concept of circumcision, which was the sign of being the children of God in the Old Testament, was a sign of death. It was a part of the flesh. We'd be cut off from a person and is a sign of the killing of something, like something it's a sacrifice that I'm making. I'm like giving up something, okay of myself and it is dying. So everything about the Christian experience, in some sense, focuses around death in some way, but not death in a, in a morbid way or in a sad or depressing way, but that Christ took the, the natural death that we would, would, would die, the death that came upon the world and upon mankind in the Garden of Eden at the fall of man, and he transformed it into something that is life-giving. So every time that we speak about death as, be, as redeemed Christians, when we speak about death, What we're actually speaking about is life, right? We're speaking about a death that leads to life. Prior to the redemption that came from the sacrifice of Christ, death was just death. There was no life associated with it. It was just death. When people died, they went to Hades. There was no eternal life, right? Um, we We were dead in sin not dead from sin. We were dead in a continual state of separation from God in sin. So even as we lived, we had a spiritual death, a spiritual separation from God. And in the physical death that we died, we became eternally separated from God, right? That was the state prior to the resurrection. After the resurrection, every kind of death brings a life, right? The death in baptism actually brings a resurrection, this is why we say, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into Christ, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So the death of baptism, the reason we we, we subject ourselves to it is not because we like death. It's because it's associated with life, that when we die, we live, okay? Same thing for putting to death the deeds of the body or being dead to sin. When we deny our body when we put to death the deeds of the body what happens yes we are in a sense killing our flesh because we are suffocating it we are not giving it the thing that it wants so in a sense the flesh the sinful flesh is dying and as that flesh is being suffocated and as that flesh is dying what happens is the spirit grows and the spirit becomes more dominant And we begin to enjoy the spirit more. And our will begins to be governed more by the spirit. So again, it is a transformation that leads to life, but it starts with death. Ultimately, the death of the body, right, that we speak about, the physical death, that when we die, again, it was transformed into life. Now, instead of leading to eternal separation from God, it brings eternal life and eternal connection with God. So everything that Christ did was focusing on death. Death was the greatest enemy of humanity. That God disarmed it completely and made it so that it had no power, and instead it became something life-giving. He completely transformed its nature. Not just that he he canceled it. No, he 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 took it and he changed its nature. So even though we still experience it, but it has no power over us anymore. And instead, it becomes something that is salvific, something that is good, something that we can look forward to so this beginning of this process of death a death that leads to life um happens in baptism this is why this is the very first step of a christian someone who wants to be a christian we are baptized okay and this bapt this baptism is a baptism into the death with christ because we physically cannot go on the cross and be killed with christ on the cross so god made a way for us to to die with him to die with him in the waters of baptism so that I can be resurrected and raised again in the waters of baptism. Okay. St. John Chrysostom, he says, he means our dying just as he died. Baptism is the cross. What the cross and burial did for the Lord Jesus Christ, baptism does for us. Even though the analogy, analogy is not perfect, He has died and has been physically buried, but we practice both death and burial burial as we confront sin, okay? So there's, there's two components. Christ did his part on the cross, and we experience the benefits of this in baptism. And then, this is like the renewal of our nature. This is the transformation of our nature. This is the death of the old nature and the creation of the new nature in us as believers. This is like the first component. When we speak about justification by faith, that's what this is. The second component is when he says we also should walk in newness of life. So walking in newness of life is speaking about what does life look like after the initial action, after the initial baptism. And this is when we speak about the sanctification, right? So there's justification and sanctification. Justification is what happens in baptism to be declared just by the blood of Christ, to to, to for God to. Forgive all of our sins, okay, to be declared just. Sanctification, then, is our response to the salvation that God is offering us, that we are choosing him, and we are choosing to live with him, and to lead a sanctified life according to his will, according to his commandments. And this is where the majority of our spiritual work resides, is in this walking in the newness of life. What does the walking in the newness of life look like? It looks like, we are asking after our baptism and chrismation, right? We speak about the four sacraments that are necessary for salvation, baptism, chrismation, confession, and communion. So the first two we do at the very beginning, and they're one time, okay? The next two are what we practice as newness of life, continual confession, continual repentance, continual um, partaking of the body of Christ in us and of course as a part of this struggling to do the good works of God and when we fail we repent and we ask God to forgive us and so on this is the whole life of a Christian this is what the life of a Christian is you know we, we we tend to complicate things and to make it much more complicated um, this is, is just boiled down this is what it is if we spend our whole lives after being baptized and chrismated just repenting and, 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 and taking communion and trying our best to live godly, this should be the whole focus of what we are here on earth doing. This is all that we're doing on the earth, right? Everything else is distraction. Everything else that we do, maybe is there are things that are necessary in order for us to live, like we have to learn and we have to work and we have to do these things because it's necessary for us to live you know, in the world, but we shouldn't make those things to be the gods that we that we seek after, because there is no eternal value in those things. Like we have to put them in their place. They are important, but they are not the most important. They are temporary. They're going to end. They're going to. We shouldn't put all of our effort in the things that are temporary, the things that are here one day and gone the next day. The things that we cannot take with us, the statuses, the careers, the degrees, the relationships, the whatever that we cannot take with us. The only thing that we can take with us is this how we walk in newness of life because this will transfer to the next life, right? Like imagine you have a currency, right? You have We have dollars here. Imagine you go to another country and that country doesn't accept dollars and there's no exchange rate. It's just worthless, right? So no matter how much dollars we have, when we try to go to this place, we will never benefit in, in any way. Even the richest person in the world, when they go to this place, it's like they have nothing, right? The currency of heaven, if you want to call it that, is this spiritual struggle. The more that we struggle, this is what we can take with us in this new place that we are going, and this is the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has freed us from sin. Okay, so again, we are participating in the same event that Christ participates in, that Christ participated in, which is the crucifixion. That's why I said that's why um, when Saint John Chrysostom says the baptism, baptism is the cross. Okay, so we are dying in baptism. We are dying to the world. Okay, in the baptism. So we have been united together in the likeness of his death on the cross, in baptism, and then we are united with him in the likeness of the resurrection, okay? As we come up from the waters of baptism. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, okay? The body of sin might be done away with. So the grace of God in that works in us, the Holy Spirit that works in us in baptism, does several things it forgives us of the original sin it forgives us of any sins that we have committed it heals our nature and makes us to be more desiring of pursuing god and able to live a life without sin it transforms us and ma- makes us to pursue god instead of pursuing anything else okay and that's why he says he who has died has been freed from sin that we should no longer be slaves okay even in the baptism prayer um, we, we there's a part where we say this person when they were born, they were a slave and not free. You know and sometimes when I, as I'm praying that like when I'm baptizing a child, and I think to myself, I'm saying that this child, when they were born, they were slaves. Even though when you look at them, they look very innocent, more innocent than me, purer than me. And I, I'm saying about this child who hasn't even had the opportunity to commit any personal sins, is a slave of sin from the moment of their birth, okay? And this is what St. Paul is saying. The person who has yet to be baptized is a person who is in the bonds of sin that, that because of their very nature, not because necessarily of any personal sin that they committed, not, not because they are rude, not because they lie or steal or break any of the commandments or any of that, because obviously a child has not done those things, right? Just by the very nature that they are inherited as a human being, they are born in a sin, in a state of sin, right? We use the example like of a child that is born to a mother who is a drug addict, okay? Completely of no personal fault of their own, but they are born with an addiction, right? So we are born in a state of brokenness, born in a state of sin. It's not about my personal choices or actions. It's about the state of our nature that we have to understand it. This is why we are in need of salvation so much. You know, people when they say, "Well, what about this person? This person's a good person." Or that person's a good person. There's nothing to do if we're good or not good. It's a it's a natural state of our nature. It is it is inherent in us. Okay? It is something that cannot be changed by us. It's only changed by God. And through baptism it is it is the change is beginning, okay? To no longer be slaves. So In baptism, we are granted freedom from sin. Now, freedom from sin does not mean that we don't sin because clearly we sin, okay? But freedom from sin means several things. One, it means that we should have no desire for sin. We should acknowledge the wickedness of sin. We should want to walk in a life free from sin. And that through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we are granted victory over sin. Victory over sin, does again, does not mean that we will never sin. But it means we have been given the capacity that if we continue to struggle and to pursue God, that we can overcome sin. Maybe we will never overcome all sins in our life because we will forever be weak human beings. But through this struggle, we'll become more and more Christ-like. This is what we mean when we say we will be Christ-like. We are united with Christ. Just as Christ is pure and holy, being united with Christ, we become pure and holy as he is. Closer and closer and closer in that walk of purity, of holiness and righteousness. And the reason we do it is not because we just want to be free from sin. We do it because we want to be with the Lord. And sin is the obstacle between us and God. The reason sin is sin is because God said it is. We are wanting to be pleasing to God. We are wanting to be united with God. And for that reason, we cut out everything that prevents that. Just like if there is someone that you love so much... And then you figure out what is it that I have to do to be with this person, okay? This thing that I have to do to be with this person to the fullness, is to is to cut sin out of my life. Then I will experience this relationship with God to the fullest. And this is why I I, this is what my goal is. My goal is this, okay? So we who have died in baptism, have been set free from the bondage of sin that kept us from being able to live righteously, kept us from being able to be holy and to follow God's commandments. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Okay? So, after our baptism, Having a life with him, it is a life that is dead to sin and all the attachments of the world. Because we have been offered by God what is far greater than what that is in the world. And so we choose God rather than to choose the world. All of our attention and our focus should be on this renewed life instead of the things that we left behind. Okay, And Christ, it says what? He dies no more. He died one time and then there is eternal life forever unending life christ only died once so also we only die in that sense once for the death that he died he died to sin once for all and so he grants us eternal life so that we never have to suffer the consequences of death again okay likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to god in christ jesus our lord Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So what is he saying? do not allow yourself to be controlled by sin be dead to sin have no desire for sin and one of the works of the holy spirit in us is to make us naturally despise it the things that used to be attractive to not be attractive anymore the things that we used to want to go after we have no desire to go after them anymore now this is a struggle i'm not saying that this happens just in an instant. But this is what God allows us to experience over time as we grow closer to him to completely transform the way we think, the way we see things, our goals and desires and our will. Previously, we had no choice. Previously, prior to our baptism, being enslaved to sin, there was no matter what I did, I could never be free from this. Whereas now, having been redeemed and transformed, yes, I still have a choice. I can choose to sin, but I can also choose sin. Righteousness, whereas before I did not have this choice. I could not live righteous before. St. Jerome says, this is our present task. As long as our lives are temporary and uncertain, let us not allow sin or the passion of sin to dominate our mortal bodies. Indeed, if we submit to the passions of sin, it will reign over us. The desire to sin is within us, yet we do not allow it to reign over us. By not allowing it to usurp our members, we allow virtue to demand them as her entitlement. So, like, because we are not offering our members, our body, our mind to sin, we are instead offering them to virtue. So that as we depart from sin, naturally virtue begins to fill us. In this manner, our members become instruments of God's righteousness and not instruments of sin sin does not dominate us for we are not subject to the law which commands us to do what is good without granting goodness to us remember we said this was the the shortcoming of the law the law commands us to do good it tells us what is good and it tells us what is not good and then in reading it we discover that we are not good but the law does not give us any solution doesn't say okay because you are not good this is what you need to do in order to become good there is no solution in the old testament the law does not give right the law which commands us to do what is good without granting goodness to us by being subject to grace we get to love what the law commands us to do and grace is able to dominate over the will so what saint jerome is saying that through grace now having been empowered to actually do according to the law The law becomes lovely to us. The law becomes something enjoyable to us because God gave the law all along as a protection from destruction. Like, all of this talk against the law, St. Paul is not saying that the law is bad. He's not saying the law is irrelevant or the law was given by God incorrectly or there's something wrong with the law. What he is saying is the law brought death because the problem is in us. We were unable to fulfill the law. But what is the purpose of the law? God gives us the law so that if we follow it, we have the best life we can have. We have the most enjoyable life. We have a life where we stay away from bad influences, things that will lead us to addiction, problems with other people, hatred, jealousy, all these things that consume us and destroy us and bring anxiety and mental illness and all the things that that plague us, that if we were perfect, able to fulfill the law, doing exactly what God asked us to do, we would be protected from so much bad stuff. God gave us the law to protect. But because we were unable to live it, the law for us became a source of stress and anxiety in itself because all it was was a reminder of our our failures. Every time we try to do it, we can't. So what St. Jerome is saying now is, by being subject to grace, now having received the grace of God in the New Testament and through baptism, we get to love what the law commands us to do. We begin to appreciate the law of God. So, for instance, we begin to appreciate celibacy. Whereas before, celibacy was something that was impossible. Some, something that we, we couldn't fathom it or, or, or desire it or see any good in it. Whereas now, when we look at, we look at what, is it, what is it that God commands us to do, we see good in his commandments, right? Before, we felt that cheating was the best way of success. Now we find that cheating is loathsome. I don't want to do it. I, I, I hate it. And in fact, I feel that being honest, God is going to um, bring me success in a far greater way than I would be able to achieve through cheating or lying or everything else, right? So having been redeemed and filled with the grace of God, the commandments of God become delightful, even as they are difficult, even as it is still a war that we struggle and fight against our nature. And yet, when we experience and taste what it's like to live in virtue with God, it is a far greater experience and more delightful experience than any sin could ever bring. Okay, And so the g- grace actually made us appreciate the law and benefit from the law because now we are able to actually follow it. We're actually able to do what God commanded. Okay, So this first part he's speaking um, about being dead to sin and being alive to Christ, not being slaves of sin and so on. Now he's going to speak about freedom. What then shall we say because we are not under the law but under grace? Sorry. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Okay? Again, he's going back to that point. Just because we are now redeemed and we have the grace of God and we have even forgiveness when we fall into sin, does that mean that we should just sin willfully and not really care because we are under grace? So he he says no. Do you not know? To whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So he's saying, Are you in control of yourselves? Okay. So the answer he's saying is you are not in control. Okay. Either you are submitting yourself to sin and disobedience, in which case you are a slave. Or you are in obedience and submitting to God, right? You are either, okay, um, slaves of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Those are the two options, okay? So so anytime that we are not in control of ourselves, then there is a problem. That is revealing that we have a weakness, that we have something that we are unable to exercise our will, okay? And, And when we are unable to exercise our will, that is reflecting of a problem. That's why, for instance, we fast. Not because the food is bad, you know? Not, not because the food that we wanna eat is bad. <laughs> um, it's not, right? There's nothing wrong with eating food, right? But what if I am compelled against my will that, that I am not in control of myself and I'm just going after something and I can't say no to it? That is what's wrong. Because now I have become a slave, right? And in Christ, we should have no slavery. We, that is exactly why Christ came, to set us free from bondage. So he wants us to be completely free from any bondage. Whether that thing itself is sinful or whether it is not sinful is not even really the point. right? This is why, for instance, gluttony is a sin. A lot of times gluttony is for something that inherently itself is not a sin. But the gluttony itself, the inability to control oneself, is the sin. And I remember His Holiness Pope Schnuda, one time he said that he realized that he had an addiction to tea and he d- he, because he would have tea every day and he felt like he had to have it at a certain di- time of day. And so he decided to cut tea out of his life, right? There was, there was nothing wrong with tea. It's because he identified that there was something in his life that had control over him and he wanted to break that. He didn't want to have that, okay? and just as we can be slaves of sin we can also be slaves of righteousness okay slaves of righteousness meaning we have given up our personal will and freedom to conform ourselves to the will of god that our desire is to be in complete obedience to god and this is what brings us joy the difference is is that this is a choice right this what we call you know a, a slave of righteousness or obedience to righteousness, This is a choice I'm making. I am choosing to surrender my will to God. And so in that case, there is a master that is over me, that is telling me what to do and how to live and how to think, and I'm allowing this, and this is obedience to God. Okay. Whereas the other slavery to sin is something that is against my will. Because we do not want to be slaves to sin, and yet when we try to free ourselves, maybe we find that we are pulled back. And every time we try to free ourselves, we are pulled back. So this is the the loss of self-control and the loss of the exercise of our will. This is what is reflecting of a problem. This is when we need to bring God into this and to ask him to break these bonds in our life so that we can live freely. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Right. So he's speaking to the Romans. You were, f- were slaves of sin. You were living in sin. And yet when you were preached the word of, s- of salvation, this doctrine that you were delivered, you obeyed it, right? Before baptism, you had no choice and were slaves of sin, but now you can live in righteousness. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness for when you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness free in regard to righteousness means that you did not practice righteousness when you were slaves of sin you did not practice righteousness so this is the choice that we are being asked to make okay choose to f- to to surrender your will to god and give up this Personal freedom by living and conforming your life to God, and this is that you are living in righteousness and obedience to righteousness, and so that you can no longer be living in bondage to the slavery of sin. He goes on, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. This is very powerful. What fruit? did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? Like, what benefit did you actually get from any sin that you committed? And maybe when we think through the sins that we commit and struggle with, the answer is we don't receive any benefit. Maybe we receive anxiety and stress and shame and guilt, and maybe whatever temporary benefit that we relieve has a long-term pain associated with it. So, He's saying the momentary pleasure or benefit that you experience in sin turns into bitterness and regret, for the end of those things is death, right? Sin is completely irrational. Ultimately, the outcome of sin is destruction. And again, this is why God told us not to do these things, because they lead ultimately to human destruction. So when we say that the God, the, the, the law is good, we are saying is, God has accurately warned us and told us about the things that lead to human destruction. And he told us n- to be careful not to go there because you will be destroyed if you do. So stay away from these things. This is this is, why, this is the law. This is why God gave us the law to protect us uh, out of love for us and, and, and out of his goodness to us. Not because he wants to restrict us, because he wants to protect us and he wants to save us. So what fruit did you have then and the things of which you are now ashamed but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of <coughs> slaves of God you have fruit to holiness and the end ever at the end everlasting life for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our lord so as believers we no longer have to suffer in this cycle of destruction where we are subjected to, we're subjecting ourselves to all the negative consequences of sin and in and, and the cycle and the spiral of destruction that we are living in. Because in Christ, we, we, we transition from being slaves of God to being, sorry, slaves of sin to being slaves of God. To have your fruit to holiness, right? So the, the outcome of our actions, the outcome of our faith, the fruit of our life, brings holiness and ultimately brings everlasting life for the wages of sin is death that in sin we have now there is no pleasure there is the 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 deception the appearance of pleasure the appearance of goodness but when we eat of it just as eat eve ate from the forbidden fruit what appeared to her as being good for food brought death with it and that is the case of all sin we we take a bite of it and it appears good but it brings death instead of the promise that it offered to us. But the gift of God that he gives is eternal life. Any questions about chapter 6 before we move on? Okay. Chapter 7. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. So who are those who, who know the law? The Jews. Okay, so he's, he's speaking to the Jews. Remember, Rome had a mix of Jews and Gentiles. Here he's speaking to the Jews. Do you not know, brethren, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So what is he saying? So here he's saying, as long, so so he's, he's, he's giving this analogy, he's saying, He's speaking about an analogy of a woman who is married to one man and as long as she is married to him and the man is alive, then he is the one with authority over her. But if her husband dies, then she is free to marry another man. Okay? And these two men represent like the old covenant under the law and the new covenant in Christ. So he's saying as long as original husband the old covenant in the law reigns and that you are married to the law that you are married to the old covenant that the old covenant is the one that has authority over you then you have th- then you are subject to that okay you are subject to that but if this original husband this c- old covenant dies you now are can marry the new husband who is christ and be subject to him okay so his his, his conclusion is that therefore my brethren you also have become dead to the law through the body of christ so in the coming of christ the old husband died the law the requirements of the law died okay and there instead came grace the grace and the transformation inside of a person all that we've been talking about walking in the newness of life, justification by faith, righteousness of God in us, and all those things. This is the new covenant, okay, that we now have access to, but only if we are no longer married to the original. So what is he saying to the Jews? He's saying if you are to benefit from all that Christ came and did, the new covenant, you cannot be still married to the old, right? So he's again addressing this point where the Jews think, well, you know what, well, we have the benefits of Christ, but we also have circumcision, and we have the feasts and the fasts and all the laws of the Old Testament. Okay, He's saying no, because if you want to be married, if you want to be fully in the New Covenant, you have to leave behind the Old Covenant. Okay? You have no salvation through the law so that you can benefit from the grace of God because salvation cannot come from the law because no amount of following the law will bring salvation, and you cannot follow the law anyway. Because you are sinners, right? So instead, the only way forward is to have is to be married to Christ, the new husband. Okay, the new covenant, so that you have grace working in you, so that you have forgiveness of sins and salvation. Okay, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So when this second marriage in Christ allows us through the grace of God to actually follow the law, to actually do good works. To bear fruit. Where the original marriage that we had did not allow us to bear fruit. The God, just like Saint Jerome said, the law did not bring goodness. It asked us to be good, but it did not bring goodness to enable us to follow the law to be good. So in that sense, it was like a it was like a slave. It's like a like a like a slave master. It's just here are the commandments, and the more I read the commandments, the more I am condemned, the more I'm condemned, the more I'm condemned. There's nothing I can do to free myself from this cycle of condemnation, which is exactly why Christ came, and he set us free from those requirements, and he gave us the power to actually fulfill the law of God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Okay, so what does he mean when he says, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. What does that mean?
1: The law told you where um, your sin was and that it could only bring death. Like there's no way to redeem you from that.
0: So that's definitely a part of it because definitely the law told us what is sin and there was no fruit to come of it because we couldn't follow the law. What does it mean when it says the sinful passions which were aroused by the law? once you have the law in front of you you want to do it more so they want to sin more because it's when you're told no you want to do it again exactly right that it's like the rebellious spirit so we are we we the moment the law is given now suddenly not only are we sinners but we are, are aroused to sin more like we are we are we are aroused to do even what is worse just because we have been told not to you know like if God had never said anything to Adam and Eve about do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he never said anything, and he treated it just like another tree, they probably would have gone a lot longer without eating of it. Right? I mean, what made them eat of it was specifically because God said, no, no, not this one. And so they ate. You know, if, if, if he treated it just like anything else. So the moment we are told no is the moment that we desire more. Okay, So, so that's what he is saying. But now we have been delivered from the law, right? We have, we have been delivered. We are no longer subject to the judgment of the law because we have grace. Having died to what we were held by because we are no longer in bondage anymore. We were enslaved before. We are no longer enslaved to the obedience to the law, the, the, the requirement of perfection of obedience in order to have salvation. We, do, we, we no longer are required to have perfection so that we should serve God in the newness of the Spirit. So having received the Spirit of God, we operate according to the Spirit and not according to the oldness of the letter. And you see this very much in um, the way, let's say, that the Jews view things versus the Christians view things. Like, the Jews are all about, well, we have to wash our hands a very specific way. And we have to... um, cannot walk more than a certain distance. And if we do this, then this will happen. If we do this, this will happen. It's very much about mechanically observing like like a legalistic view of God because that's actually what, what it was in the Old Testament, right? Whereas in Christianity, you say God judges according to the intention. And God, even when we fall short of the requirements, God even looks at this, right? What is the reason that we fell short? Maybe we fell short for a reason we could not control. You know? Like, for instance, we speak about certain things. Like, we speak about how baptism has to be by immersion because Christ was baptized by immersion. But does that mean that Christ will not accept any baptism that is not by immersion? There are sometimes that are like babies that are born and they're in the ICU and they can't come to the church to be baptized, and the priest will go baptize the child by just sprinkling water on, I- on him while he's in the ICU. That's not the way that God said we should be baptized. But does that mean that God does not accept it? Right? That is the difference between the oldness of the letter and the newness of the Spirit. The oldness of the letter, it's like you are confined to the rules and the rights and nothing outside of this is accepted. And it must be performed perfectly or else it is rejected. Right. That is the oldness of the letter. The newness of the Spirit is there is what is God's intention behind the things that he's asking us to do. And there is flexibility with God, right? There is flexibility. Now, it is not up to, to, to us to make exceptions for God and say, well, God is so merciful and good that he's going to accept this and this and this. No, we can't turn the exception into the rule. But we can say that we are operating as best as we can according to the rules that God gave. But what is the purpose of those rules? There is the reason behind it. Like even, like, say, the Sabbath, You know, Christ was, when he was rebuking the Pharisees, he told them that the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created as a day so that people would not be attached to the world to spend their day worshiping God as a day to grow in their spirit and so on. But the Jews turned it into just a legalistic actions of things that should and should not be done. And it wasn't about the spirit of worship in any way. It was just about the legalistic following of certain rules. Again, that's the difference between the oldness of the letter and the newness of the spirit.
1: So how do you, wait, okay. So in the oldness of the law, you had to do everything perfectly or there was a consequence and all of these things. And then we understand that there's, that the spirit of it is more merciful and gracious so how do you explain to someone though that the God of both is the same?
0: All of the answer is determined by what is it that Christ did. Everything that the, 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 the incarnation is the answer of why things are different now than they were before. And what does it mean to be different? It is not that what God desires is different. Is that he is able to work with us through his grace even though we are unable to do the, the, the fullness of it. Right? We are unable, like, like if we are unable to fully realize everything that God has said, well, there is grace and forgiveness. Right? Well, that grace and forgiveness came through the incarnation. What is it that Christ did? So God is the same. The difference is that now when God sees us, like you know when we use the term in Christ, what does in Christ mean? Think of it literally, that you have Christ, and we are inside him. So when God the Father sees us, he sees Christ, because we are hidden inside of Christ. And because Christ has, is, has perfection, because Christ has justification, because Christ has righteousness, because Christ went to paradise, because Christ, like in the eyes of the Father, is blameless, so also he sees us this way. So it is not because God has changed and it's not because we are doing better than before. It's simply because that we are now in Christ and everything that we do is in him. And being in him, our whole relationship with God the Father has transformed from what it was before because we are righteous in his sight. Like when we confess our sins, we are truly righteous in the sight of God. Whereas in the Old Testament, no amount of confession Took the sins away. There was still the same blocking and obstacles between, between us and God. Whereas now there is not. Okay. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because again, he keeps talking bad about the law. He's going about. Is the law sin? Is the is the law wrong? Like, what? Why? Why did even God give the law if the law was so bad? He's saying, is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. So what does that mean? It's saying the law is is good, the standard is good. Remember, this is the the." the the commandments that God gave to protect us from destruction. But the problem is in us that when we saw this plan, this guides that God gave out of our rebelliousness, instead of being great, we're going to do it, we had the opposite response. We said, no, we're going to transgress it like crazy. The moment I knew that God said, being like covetousness was wrong, you shall not covet, but I immediately desired to covet. Maybe I had even considered coveting before, but now coveting is great to me, okay? Produced in me all manner of evil desire. I w- was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What does that mean? If there was no law, there would be no sin. So technically there is sin, but there's no, what we said was transgression, right? Be- so sin means you are, you are breaking the will of God. Whatever God desires, you are not doing it. That's sin. Falling short of what God wants us to do is sin, whether we realize it or not. But transgression is, can, is only possible when we break a commandment that we are aware of. So God gave us the law. I'm breaking the law. This is called a transgression, okay? So here what he's saying is, when he says, I was once alive, I was alive once without the law, he's not saying that he was actually alive and then when the law came, he died. What he is saying is, I thought I was alive before the law came. Like, I thought everything was great. As long as I didn't know what God was asking of us, whatever I'm doing is great. Like, there's no, there's nothing, there's nothing specific that I would look at my life and say there's something wrong with that. You know, it reminds me of King Josiah. You know, King Josiah, who's a king during a period of time where previous kings were very wicked. And so for generations, um, Israel was not following the law to the point where the people forgot the law, even what it was, or that there was a law. Like, that's how long, how much time passed to where people didn't even realize that there was a law. so one day, While they were cleaning the temple and searching in the temple, they discovered the book of the law. And so the priest brought the book of the law to Josiah. And they were reading it like for the first time. They never even knew of it before. And when they read it, they realized that they were not doing anything according to what the law was saying. And it even says that Josiah, because he was a very righteous king and he wanted to please God, he tore his clothes. Right? Because he realized. So in that moment, According to the, to the language here that St. Paul is using, he died. He died in the knowledge that he has been sinning, and all the people have been sinning all along, and transgressing God's command, and they didn't even realize it. Okay, So before the law was known, we were unaware of the magnitude of our sins and condemnation. Right? We, all, we weren't aware of the magnitude of the condemnation against us. So we were completely just blind, like walking blindly without understanding. Okay, but when the law was revealed, I realized that I actually have a death sentence. You know, I thought my life was going great. Now I realize that I have a death sentence. Okay, so of course that's very distressing, right? So this is what he means when he says, But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. This is what St. John Chrysostom says The law has not produced the existence of sin, for it was there before. Right, so you can't take literally what St. Paul is saying, as though that sin, that that um, uh, death, actually came from the law itself. However, the law has indicated sin, which had escaped our recognition. This is a complement to the law, for people were sinning before the law came and without realizing it. When the law was delivered, although they did not benefit by it, yet it revealed sin to them accurately, in order to show them that they were sinning. And why is it that God wanted them to know that they were sinning? To bring repentance, to bring humility, to bring submission, to bring uh, a realization of their need of salvation so that when the Messiah would come, they would receive him with open arms. We have been waiting for you. We have been living in death and sin and separation from God. And we are looking for the Messiah to come for our salvation. But instead, the Jewish people, instead of seeing the messiah as this we're like okay great the messiah is here he's going to be a king and he's going to over over you know destroy the romans we can conquer the romans this is this is what their view of the messiah was because they were not conscious of the magnitude of the death sentence on them they didn't realize that the biggest problem that they had was their separation from god they thought the biggest problem they had was taxes and and roman guards and and politics Like, that's what they believed was the biggest problem. And so that's why when the Messiah came, they had no idea. Like, this this man was nothing like what they thought the Messiah would be. He had none of the characteristics of what they thought he was going to be, even though all of the prophets prophesied about him and the Psalms prophesied about him. And yet, they were blind. They weren't looking at at anything from a spiritual perspective, from their sinful state, from their eternal death. They were looking at it just from political perspective political perspective, okay? So they missed it. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death, right? So the, the law explains the path of life. The law tells us how to live, right? But because I was unable to follow the law, instead, all it did was bring death, like the news, the news of death. So when somebody comes with the news of the law, I thought this is going to be great. I'm going to hear the words of the law, King Josiah. And he's like, oh, the, the book of the law. Great. Let's read the book of the law. Kind of, you can imagine it with excitement. And then when he reads it, he realizes what's written in it, and it's a big disappointment. Right? It's a disaster. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Okay? So again, it's not the law that literally killed, right? But it was the the realization that I was already dead in sin that was manifested to me through the law. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. He's reiterating that. The problem is not in the law. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me, through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Okay, again, what is he saying? The law is good. The law is not evil. The law is not wicked. The law is not a lie. The law is good. Okay? And it is the law that was given by God. But the appearance of that law, the revelation to me of that law, brought death because of my failures, because of my sins. So the problem is in me. It brought a realization of myself that I didn't know and that I didn't want to know about myself, the realization of my shortcomings and my failures. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Right? The law is spiritual. Like This is the law coming from God. It is a spiritual law. But I, as an unspiritual being, as a being that was born in, in carnality, I'm unable to live according to the spiritual law. St. John Chrysostom, he says, The apostle proclaims that there is no need to present evidence that the law is spiritual, for it is far removed from being a source of sin or a reason for ongoing wickedness. The law is spiritual. It teaches virtue and opposes vice. It carries us far away from all our forms of sin by threats, by advice, by punishment, and by correction. He's saying all these things the law tells us. There are threats, like if you don't do good, this will happen. By advice, giving guidance, by punishment, by correction and rebuke, as well as by praising virtue. All these things we find in the law. Then from where has sin come since the law is such a teacher? It arises from us. But I am carnal, sold under sin. I have welcomed the passions and become a slave to sin. I have become immersed in its depths and fallen under its law, therefore have been counted as carnal. So the clash here is that God is providing us a pure and spiritual law to very weak and carnal people. And the weak and carnal people are unable to live according to the spiritual law that God has given. For what I am doing, and now this is a very personal uh, statement here that St. Paul is speaking about. He's speaking about all of human nature, but he's also speaking about himself. He says, for what I am doing... I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. He is now exp- expressing his, the realization of humanity, of the human weakness, and our frustration at the realization that all the things that is commanded to us to be done in the spiritual law, we are unable to do even when we are convinced that this law is good that it is insufficient for me simply to believe that the law is good and that somehow gives me power to follow it, power to obey it. We might all believe that the law of God is good and that we agree that what God considers sin, we also consider sin. But that doesn't make us perfect. It doesn't make us able to keep from sin. Even the sins that are the most damaging to us, just because we know that they are sin doesn't mean that we are able to be immune to them or that we choose not to do them. For what I am doing, I do not understand. I don't even understand why I make the decisions that I make. Why do I choose to do what I do? Why do I pursue sin that I know is sin and damaging and destructive and harmful and yet I do it anyway? For what I will to do, the things that I want to do, the right things, the good things, the holy things that I want to do, I don't do them. But the things that I hate, the things I despise, those are the things that I find myself doing. Very powerful, expressive, and we can all relate to this, that this is us. If then, I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Why? Because if I don't want to do it, if I don't want to sin, right? That means with my mind, I agree that the law is correct. Like, I'm not saying, oh, no, this law, it's, it's insignificant, it's irrelevant, it's wrong, I don't care about it. That's not, no. What he's saying is, I agree that this is wrong, but I still find myself unable to do it. Think about murder, okay? Let's say a person is accused of murder, and they are guilty, but they are trying to... Um. They're trying to justify themselves or in some way. Someone could lie and say, no, I did not commit this murder. Someone could justify why I committed the murder. Yes, I killed this person, but I killed them out of self-defense. I killed them, but this is what they did, and so I should be exonerated. A person might come up with all kinds of excuses to explain justification for why they committed a murder or hide the fact that they committed a murder altogether. But th- what they will never say is, murdering people is fine it's okay to murder people no one says that no one tries to justify it by saying, what's the big deal with murdering people why because we agree that the law is good inherent to us there is the natural law that god created which tells us that something is good and something is not good so even as we acknowledge in ourselves how difficult it is for us to follow the law we do not deny that this is the law, which goes back again to the idea that the natural law, the law that God put in us cannot be man-made because if it was man-made, we would create laws that we follow easily. That would be our, like, like we, w- we would not create a standard for ourselves that we all fail at constantly every day. Why would we do so? If the law was man-made, if like, what, like what some atheists believe, atheist philosophers, they believe that morality the, the existence of morality in human beings is simply a social construct. It's simply a creation of society on its own. Not because it was given to us by the divine, not because God placed it in us, not because we are made in the image of God. Well, if this is the case, if this is a man-made artificial law, then why is it that we create a system that we are constantly failing at all the time? If morality is completely arbitrary, Completely arbitrary. There is no inherent good or evil in the world. And only man has decided that we are gonna label some things good and some things evil. Why do we choose to label the things evil that we are actually doing constantly? Wouldn't we actually wanna give ourselves points and say, well, no, we're the things that we do, we're gonna count those things as not evil. But the things that we don't do, those are the evil things. does it make sense. So that's again what he's saying. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, the natural law that is built into all of us, and clearly the law of Moses as well on top of that, where reinforces that, tells us the law of God, and we agree that it is good, even though we recognize that we are failures. Yes.
1: So if there's inherent good in all of us, uh, what do you say to someone who says, well, then isn't there some sort of like shared good in all the different laws that exist out there, like all the different religions?
0: There are, right? Like there are there are some, th- like I think murder is probably evil in every religion, right? Because there are some things that you just can't accept as being good, right? Because we all have this built-in, moral compass, which by no means is perfect because we have corrupted even that. But there are some things that are, that are in common to everyone. I don't know of anyone or any religion or any philosophy that says harming other people arbitrarily for no reason is, is good. you know. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So what, is, what, he, what, he's, what he is not saying here, he is not saying, well, you know what, I, I have no fault then. Because this is just the way that I'm made, this is my nature, I have no fault. No, what he's d- describing here is the spiritual struggle inside of us. This is what we mean when we say spiritual struggle. What is spiritual struggle? It is a struggle between the spirit and the flesh. My flesh desires to please itself. My, my flesh is against the law of God. So while God has given me a rational mind and a natural law and the explicit law and that we can mentally agree to that law, there is this other force inside of us, which is the flesh, which does not want to submit to the law of God. So part of us wants to submit to the law, and then another part of us wants to rebel against the law, rejects the law of God. Okay? and while the spirit does not desire the same things, our weakness causes the flesh to overwhelm the spirit. Right? Because again, the carnality. We have these two voices, and because we are carnal in nature, and here he's describing the natural state when we speak about someone who is born as a bondage, of, as in bondage to sin, as a slave of sin, as someone who is a slave of sin is completely overcome by carnality. Right? The spirit has no power to overcome and overwhelm the flesh. Instead, the flesh is overwhelming the spirit. So this is why like when St. Paul speaks about three types of people, he speaks about the carnal man, the natural man, and the spiritual man. The carnal man is a person who has even ignored his own moral conscience, his own moral, moral compass, and completely leading a debased life, okay? The natural man is a person that we would typically call in the world a good person. They're a person who is not running by the Spirit, but they're running by the natural law. At least the natural law is a guiding principle to them. And so in some sense, they're trying to do good. The spiritual man is the one who is running by the Spirit of God in them, who is seeking holiness, not just to be a quote-unquote good person, but holiness and submission to God. So you have the carnal man, the natural man, and the spiritual man. So he's speaking here about the spiritual struggle. Right, this 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 force inside of him that's dwelling in him, right, is, is wanting to sin. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. The carnality of the flesh that dwells in him, okay, um, is what is influencing him to do evil, okay? For to will is present, meaning I will. I want to do good. I want to do good. But how to perform that good, I don't know. Like our flesh has been corrupted to the point where even when we know the law, we are unable to fulfill the law. We're, on, we're, we're, we're in bondage. Okay, we are unable. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So again, it is the flesh inside of us, right? We are not governed simply as rational creatures, and we do everything according to reason. Our reason has been corrupted. The flesh is a powerful force, okay? I agree with God that his standards are the right, are the right standards. I agree that the natural law is correct. I agree that the Ten Commandments are the right way to live, but I find myself unable to live by them. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Right, The inward man, the rejuvenated man, the transformed man, the renewed man, the new creation, delights in the law of God. But even then, I struggle to follow. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So again, this is the spiritual struggle that we all experience. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So he reaches this point of like exacerbation. Yes. Exasperation. That's it. So he says, Oh wretched man like he he recognizes in himself like his 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 pitiful state. And really this is the pitiful state of all of us, the pitiful state of humanity. Right? This is the our pitiful state. That even when we know to do good we are unable to do. Like it's not just a matter of our ignorance. It's it's truly inability and weakness. So having reached this point, he says, Who will deliver me? Like there is no way for me to deliver myself. There is no technique I can apply in order to overcome this. There is no 12 steps. There is no counseling. There is, there is, there's nothing that I as a human being can do to overcome this, which is why I am sentenced to death, why humanity is sentenced to death. So I look to who? I look to God. Who will deliver me from this? When we, when we turn to God in the midst of our sin and our struggle and our carnality and we say, God, who will deliver me? I am unable to live righteously. I am unable to do good. I'm unable to serve. I'm unable to overcome lust. I'm un- unable to forgive my enemies. I'm, I'm, I'm unable to stop envying. I'm unable. Who will deliver me from the body of death? And this is when we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did and why he did it. Because we are in the state. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord because now he is acknowledging that we are thankful and delivered through the Incarnation. We are delivered through what Christ did for us. So now instead of just being in the state of anxiety and stress and condemnation leading to death, no, actually even in that moment, like even in the moment when we are the most aware of our sins, we can still thank God and say, thank God for the deliverance thank god because you are delivering me right and again we go back to the sanctified life that we spoke about at the beginning we start with the baptism and chrismation and the rest of our life is a spiritual struggle that includes communion and and confession that is the sanctified life we struggle we grow we try to change we do all that we can but in the end we will still find there is a war We will still find there is carnality. We'll still find that there is a spiritual struggle and sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. And in that whole battle, we have victory because just as he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are thankful to God, even in the midst of when we see ourselves as failures because our successes is not what's going to grant us eternal life. It is what Christ did that grants us eternal life and we accept his gift by faith and we accept his gift by struggling and trying our best to, to, to grow in him and believing in him. But ultimately, regardless of what state of sin I'm in or, or how much I'm struggling in something, I thank God through, uh, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I am myself to serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. And this char- characterizes our entire spiritual struggle for our whole life some people by the grace of God are able to overcome more than others some people we call them saints because of the amount they've been able to overcome other people have not but just because a person doesn't necessarily uh, reflect or live a life of virtue as much as we desire what we are looking for is the journey the the process the process is more important than where we are in the process. It is a fact that we are just in the process. We are in the process of sanctification. Wherever that happens to be, wherever the failures happen to be, we are just in a process of sanctification. And that process is what the the Christian life is. It is the process. And this is what St. Paul is describing, the struggles that we experience and the necessity of salvation so that no Jewish person can come and say, well, we're good because we're circumcised. He's saying, no, this has nothing to do with it, right? Circumcision does not do anything with this, right? It is only the grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ that can help us. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Any questions or comments? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you for every opportunity. You allow us to come to the church, to study your word, and to learn more about you. We thank you, O Lord, because you are merciful and good upon us, even when we fail, and even when we sin, and even when we do not do according to your will, repeatedly. We ask you, O God, to have mercy on us, and to grant us, even in the moments of sin and struggle, hope. And not despair, that you will grant us to overcome, and that you are continuing to sanctify us, and that you allow all things for our good. Help us to persevere, O Lord, to the end and to endure to the end, so that we do not give up, O Lord, in this process, but to continue in it, O Lord, day by day, and to partake of your sacraments and to receive of your grace, and to be thankful, O Lord, for everything you have offered us, and to continue to struggle to live a life that is pleasing to you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints,
1: And also with your spirit.